Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And for the next four episodes, in celebration of Open Access Week, the Knowledge Futures Group, a new joint initiative of the MIT Press and the MIT Media Lab, is sponsoring four special episodes on open access at the MIT Press. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Amy Brandon Peter Super about how institutions can support open access models and experimentation. Amy Brand is the director of the MIT Press. Peter Suber is the director of the Harvard Office for Scholarly Communication in the Harvard Library, director of the Harvard Open Access Project, and senior researcher at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Stay tuned after the interview for more information about the show. Amy Brand and Peter Suber, thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. I want to start by talking about the level of disruption that open access can cause in scholarly publishing. Because on one hand, it seems like open access is a huge change from the toll-based model of scholarly journal publishing. But on the other hand, it seems like many of the pieces to make open access successful are already in place, and in some instances have already been in place a long time. So how do you think the stakeholders in this area, authors, readers, publishers, should consider open access, evolutionary or revolutionary? Well, I, I, I think a lot, of course, about... Uh, you know, being the director of uh, um, a large successful university press about disruption. And, but I do see it as, as, as much more of an ongoing, um, you know, evolution than a revolution per se. Um, when I talk about open access, you know, one of the things I always point out is that, uh, you know, at the MIT Press, we make a lot of our content open access and have been doing so for a long time. But, but even when we don't, the content is often available in so many other ways, you know, through the uh, direct involvement of an author wanting to post content on their website, through less authorized ways, you know, through Sci-Hub or, or, or LibGen. And, and so, you know, as a mission-driven publisher, one of our, our key goals is to um, respond to um, the reality of, of our authors and, and readers and their needs around access to content. And so it's very much an evolutionary and not a revolutionary process. I'm very close to Amy on this. In the early days of the open access movement, people compared it to the uh, invention of the movable type press. And I had to disagree. That was a technology revolution, and it really was revolutionary. And open access is not a technology revolution. We already had the internet. That was a technology revolution. What we did after the internet uh, evolved and uh, after the web was available on top of the internet was to develop business models to permit open access and to uh, develop the courage to act on our interests. We always had the, the authors always had the interest in sharing their work as widely as possible. Readers always had the interest in gaining access to as much work as possible. The internet made that possible. It wasn't obvious right away how to pay for that, uh, how to satisfy copyright law, how to satisfy other constraints, but we figured that out. So it's, let's say, a business model and cultural revolution laid on top of a pre-existing technology revolution. And ever since then, it's been evolutionary, as Amy says. Now, Amy, as you mentioned, you are the director of the MIT Press. You have been since 2015. And you have expressed your desire to see the MIT Press at the vanguard of open access and scholarly work. Earlier in the series, uh, we looked at the Frankenbook Project, which is being run on the PubPub platform, developed at the MIT Media Lab. What is it about projects such as PubPub or the Journal of Design and Science or the Knowledge Futures Group that the MIT Press and the MIT Media Lab are jointly developing that illustrate the future direction of the press? It, this is both kind of forward-looking and, and backward-looking. And the legacy and the identity of the MIT Press has always been 
highly experimental in how we design the things we publish and in how we produce them. And certainly uh, when we started uh, publishing things online, um, we you know, carried that spirit through both in terms of open access to things that we publish, but also um, into sort of features and functionality in the digital works that we do publish. And so the, the Knowledge Futures Group and the things under that umbrella, which include the PubPub platform, things like the Journal of Design and Science, uh, came into being in partnership with the Media Lab just recently. And it is the sort of de facto experimental unit of the MIT Press. Um, I often talk about it being um, a really kind of fun juggling act between maintaining this very successful uh, publishing business that's based largely on sales of print works on the one hand, while on the other hand, being able to experiment without much um, pressure for, you know, cost recovery and, and, and um, you know, financial bottom lines, which was, this is really what I wanted to set up, um, is what we're doing in the Knowledge Futures Group. So we have this kind of safe space, a sandbox, a playground, if you will, to, at, on the one hand, you know, just do pure experimentation and development. And at the same time, because we're running uh, an ongoing publishing business, to bring back the things that we're working on into, um, into the MIT Press. And so already, even though it's brand new, you know, many of the, of the um, new books and journals that we're, we're publishing are being published on the PubPub platform as that platform continues to evolve. And so, you know, this is, this is really kind of a press in MIT's, you know, image, which is all about experimentation and innovation. Peter, in your book on open access, you give readers a sense of how open access can work across two dimensions in publishing. Could you explain the differences between green and gold open access and also between gratis and Libra open access? Sure. Uh, before I do, let me say that these terms can be off-putting to newcomers. They're insider jargon. They represent uh, substantive topics that we would inevitably talk about even if we ended up using different terms. And so I don't want the terminology to get in the way. On the other hand, experts need shorthand to talk with each other, and that's why these terms exist. Uh, green and gold are more about the venues or the delivery vehicles for open access, and Gratis and Libra are more about how open something is. So let me explain. Uh, the vehicles, green and gold, there are many ways to deliver open access through journals, through books, through repositories, through wikis, through email, through blogs, through peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks. The two that get the most attention in the world of scholarly journals are journals themselves and repositories. So if open access articles are delivered through open access journals, we call that gold open access. If they're delivered through open access repositories, they're called green open access. And an article in a repository that's green, for example, might exist in a non-open journal. And so this helps us talk about its status. It's not open through the journal, but it is open through a repository. And one reason the distinction matters is that it's often legally permissible to make an article open through a repository even when it's not open through the journal. So when we're trying to explain the open access options to authors, we can say, go ahead, if you need to, publish in that non-open journal, but still make a copy open in a repository. Now, Gratis and Libra, in the early days, uh, people talked about open access using the word free, which is a little unfortunate because free is ambiguous. Uh, first of all, we don't know whether it means free for the author or free for the reader, 
but there are many degrees of freedom as well. And many journals thought if they made an article free of charge for reading, then it was open access. But the public definitions of open access always insisted on more. That the work should be free of charge, but it should also be free for certain kinds of use and reuse. Now, in U.S. copyright law, we already permit that some kinds of use and reuse beyond uh, mere access through fair use. But fair use has limits. And so Libre Open Access permits use and reuses beyond fair use. So we need terminology for this. What if a work is merely free of charge, but the reader is limited to what's permitted by fair use? That's gratis only access. But if the work is free of charge, but also permits uses beyond fair use, then it's Libre Open Access. I was wondering if you both could address how scholarly authors can benefit from open access, because it seems that one problem is that while many scholars agree with open access in principle, they seem to have some gaps in their knowledge of how open access affects their intellectual property rights to their work, or whether publishing preprint work in open access could negatively affect how their research is received, or even whether open access is an attack on peer review in general. Do you think there's misunderstandings there? I agree. There's kind of unequal understanding among um, the research community and members of that community around open access and the relationship between open access and, and quality and rigor in publishing. I mean, but to, to get back to your initial question, obviously when you are uh, producing research, you're an author, uh, you want to maximize the readership and the utility of, of, of what you've produced. And, and that's a large part of the spirit um, of, of open access and why it's so important. Um, getting the work as uh, out in the world and 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 used um, potentially even repurposed in various ways depending upon the the license under which the open license under which you might uh, publish your work i I think that there's a lot of very interesting you know work going on right now things under development to help people understand that there's no reason why uh, adopting an open access business model indicates anything about the, the, the rigor, rigor and curation um, of the publishing process. Um, and that's something that we've been working on. I, I, I'm, I'm always very, very clear to say that whether we publish something under a paid model or under an open access model has no bearing whatsoever on how it was peer reviewed, how it's going to be designed, how it's going to be marketed. I mean, all the, all the same high quality standards are um, in, in place. And so I think the more transparent we can be around the type of peer review that a work has undergone, and I've been working on a system of sort of badging or tagging peer review, um, the, the better, uh, so that people begin to understand that um, even though there are such things as predatory open access journals that have no peer review, that, that, that those are really outliers and not part of the, the core corpus of scholarship that mission-driven publishers like the MIT Press and other quality publishers are producing. Peter, do you have anything you wanted to add to that? You started by asking what the benefits are for authors. The benefits for readers are kind of obvious. The benefits for authors are that they reach a wider audience. And by reaching a wider audience, they have greater impact. And that's what they've been seeking as authors. They want audience and they want impact. Uh, Amy is completely right that open access should have, can have, usually does have no effect on peer review. One of the most common misunderstandings from the beginning was that open access was designed to bypass peer review. And it was designed to replace peer reviewed research with unrefereed uh, free sharing, kind of like the blogosphere. That was always false. 
but it's been one of those tenacious misunderstandings. Even when we think it's dead, it reappears somewhere else. So many people still think it's about bypassing peer review, or they think that open access works are peer reviewed at a lower level of rigor. Uh, Amy's completely right uh, to correct that. We've all been trying to correct it uh, continuously for a couple of decades now. One problem is that their peer review is evolving. The internet makes possible new kinds of peer review that were not possible before, and scholars are experimenting with different kinds, and scholars take opinions on which kinds are better than other kinds, and all that's happening at the same time that open access is evolving. So people can think that open access is somehow committed to one model rather than another, uh, or that uh, open access favors one model over another. Open access is compatible with every model of peer review, including the most conservative old-time models, but also including the most innovative uh, open models of peer review. And it's also true, at the same time this is happening, that there are some uh, dishonest outfits taking advantage of uh, the uh, desperation of scholars to publish to create scam journals that don't do any peer review. Nevertheless, uh, open access is compatible with rigorous peer review and uh, the established open access journals are all high in quality in that way. Uh, you also asked about uh, scholar confusion about copyrights and preprints and that's true too and there are different reasons for it. First, copyright is kind of complicated and most scholars didn't have to know much about copyright before the internet age. I remember when uh, personal computers were new, I loved them. Uh, I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life working with them, but I had this dismaying thought, oh gosh, there's an awful lot here to learn, to understand. Computers are really complicated and interesting. Am I going to have to learn all that? And I think a lot of scholars are saying that now about copyright. It's up to me how to share my work. Uh, I am the copyright owner when I finish writing something. How do I dispose of those rights in a way that matches my interests? Which rights can I retain? Which rights should I retain? Which rights should I transfer? I think a lot of scholars are saying, this is complicated. Am I going to have to learn all this? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. And it's just as beneficial to them to learn that as it was uh, a generation ago to learn some of the uh, technology of computers. And on preprints, here it's not so much a matter of uh, not being aware of something complicated like copyright law. It's that publishers actually do disagree, and some authors who share preprints are punished for doing it, and others are not. And so uh, authors have to learn the landscape and figure out where the risks are and whether it's wise to take those risks. And by the way, I support them. I don't want to make it sound too risky to do, but some publishers will, as a matter of policy, refuse to consider an article that is already circulated as a preprint. That's just a fact. It's regrettable. I think those publishers are gradually uh, disappearing, but they exist, and those who want to share their work as preprints should know they exist and make decisions accordingly. A lot of the work that I read about open access is focused on journals, but both of you have written that this is a bigger universe than that, and that open access has a role not only in scholarly journals, but also in such things as academic monographs, general trade publications, even textbooks. Could you both talk about how you would see open access changing these other publishing markets? First, I support open access to books. And as you say, I have an open access book at MIT Press. In fact, I have two. And MIT has other open access books than mine, and it's one of the leaders in experimenting with open access books. In fact, I'd say now it's no longer an experiment. Open access books are harder than open access articles because they have higher production costs. And to make something open, you have to cover the production costs somehow. And finding that revenue or that subsidy uh, at a higher level for books is simply harder than for journals, but it's possible. And more and more journals, or more and more uh, 
uh, book publishers are experimenting. There's intriguing uh, evidence that some full text open access books stimulate an increase in the net sales of the print editions. If true or when true, uh, that helps solve the problem. On the other hand, it's not always true. And so one thing we're learning as we publish more and more open access books is when it might be true, when it might not be true. But we're also learning how to raise the money to pay for open access books. Uh, and sometimes it's a matter of finding uh, a benefactor, but sometimes it's a matter of uh, permitting the open access edition to appear only after some delay when the book has had a chance to uh, establish itself. Open access textbooks are uh, a fast growing phenomenon because non-open textbooks are increasing in price at a hyperinflationary rate. It's unsustainable. There's a kind of textbook crisis the way there was a journal crisis or still is a journal crisis. And open access textbooks are the obvious way to solve it. One of the differences there is that successful textbooks can be extremely lucrative for the authors uh, and it's hard to uh, get them to write open access editions. It's not hard to get uh, highly qualified people to write open access textbooks. Uh, if they don't have a very lucrative one to give up, if they simply want to create a good book for their students. Since you raised the broader question of different genres of uh, writing, let me just add here that I don't think the open access movement is about uh, information ought to be free. That is, I don't think uh, every genre uh, should be free of charge. I actually worry sometimes that the open access movement will have spillover effects and make life difficult for novelists and journalists and movie makers and musicians and people who depend on royalties to make a living. One reason why scholarship uh, is leading on open access is that most scholars don't depend on royalties to make a living and they can afford to give away uh, the work. Uh, the hard part is to uh, find ways for the publisher to go along and give away the work. But uh, musicians, movie makers, journalists and, novels, and novelists are not in the same position. And I would not like to see a world in which successful open access scholarship undermined uh, the market for novels and journalism. I want them to survive. Amy, would you like to add anything to that? Peter is uh, absolutely right about different types of authors and creators. And, and even within you know, a university press like MIT Press, we have different types of books. And so, um, yes, we, we have, in fact, our, our OA publishing on the book side precedes the OA publishing activities on the journal side at the press. Um, and we tend to think about books for other scholars versus a general readership versus the student or textbook market um, somewhat differently, but we're doing open access publishing in all, all three areas. Typically, um, our policy is that if an author wants to publish a book with the press and, and would like it to be open access, that we will work with the author to make that possible, regardless of the type of book that they're publishing. It's absolutely true that we have found we're able to publish open access editions at the same time that we're, we're successfully selling um, the print editions of the same works. Um, of course, it varies from field to field and, and, and the way in which the open access edition is, is licensed, made available, et cetera. We're, right now, um, we're working a lot uh, on our digital textbooks and different kinds of models of, of making our textbooks available. Sometimes that's open access. Sometimes the focus is on, you know, very affordable e-rentals or very just affordable prices because our textbooks tend to be uh, less expensive than, um, than commercial um, publishers. And there are a range of, of partnerships with, for example, you know, MITx and the Office of Digital Learning um, around 
creating uh, you know, textbooks that are emerging out of open courses, uh, for example. So it's a really, you know, I'm, I'm very engaged right now in uh, you know, a new models to make our digital books as openly available as possible. Um, and that's very much a part of our mission, especially for, for the scholarly works. How can interested parties continue to follow the work both of you are doing around open access? We have so much going on. Going to mitpress.mit.edu, you'll see a lot of what we're doing around open access. Also, uh, for the, the website for our Knowledge Futures group, um, will increasingly um, become, become a place where we're featuring uh, what we're doing on the PubPub platform and elsewhere. Uh, for about 15 years, my primary work for Open Access was in reading, uh, speaking, and advocacy, and the easy way was to follow my writings. But for the past five years, I've stepped back from that, so it's hard to follow the work I'm doing that way. I'm working for Open Access in other ways, through other means. But you can follow the work of the Harvard Office for Scholarly Communications, where I'm the director, or the Harvard Open Access Project at the Berkman Center, where I'm the director, or Follow my Twitter account. Is that at Peter Suber? Yes, just at Peter Suber. Amy Brandon, Peter Suber. Thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Information about the Knowledge Futures Group can be found at mitpress.mit.edu slash KFG. And information about the press in general can be found at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can follow the MIT Press on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2018, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.